This is the Commercial Property Show Australia, show number seven. What kind of cap rate would you expect investing in a caravan park? The coast is for show and the country's for dough. <laughs> uh, the country locations, you'll get up to that 15, up to 25% returns to regional centres, the 10s and the 12s. If you're going along the coast, it might be the 8 to the 10s. How's everyone doing? We have an absolutely killer show lined up for you today. But first, a quick reminder that the lucky draw for a signed copy of the second edition of Chris Lang's book, How Investing in Commercial Property Really Works, is being drawn on Tuesday the 26th of May. So if you want to be in with a chance, all you need to do is purchase the nine-step formula for just $1 using the discount coupon code of 66OFF and you can find the link in the show notes. And always guys, if you're enjoying the show and judging from the amount of downloads it seems like you are, do me a massive favor and hit that subscribe button and give the show a review. Now, in today's show, the guru Michael Philpot shares his wealth of knowledge on the highly lucrative subject of MHE developments and caravan parks. He explains where the opportunities are and the small business tax concessions that could help set up your retirement and create generational wealth. If you love cash flow and you like developing, this could be the ticket to your financial freedom. James Dawson explains how the typical mum and dad investor values commercial property and he also drops some great tips on how to acquire the relevant information to do so. He also shares the three ways a valuer can use to value a commercial property and the basic things you need to know to get the most out of your next valuation. Daniel Cullinane jumps deep into the future of the Sunshine Coast. He shares the big infrastructure projects and where the new A-grade city development is. He explains how it's going to shape the Sunshine Coast and the flow-on effect it's going to have on cap rates and rates per square meter. How to add value to your investment property is one of the most interesting topics. Being able to identify the opportunities is a skill and a mindset that can be learnt. Chris Lang shares the most effective ways to add value to your asset and the steps that need to be taken to do so. This interview alone could make you hundreds of thousands of dollars. Let's get to the show. Returning once again is best-selling author of The Seven Day Weekend and just all-around top bloke, James Dawson. How are you traveling, mate? Great. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having me on. Today, we're going to continue the learning and explain to the listeners how to value a commercial property. So what's the most common way an investor values a commercial property? Okay, so the most common way that your average investor, I would say mum and dad investor or young young man investor like yourself, Andrew, would value a commercial property 
is by using the capitalization approach, which effectively means that you are using a cap rate applied to the net rent of that property. So how does that work? I guess the best way to show is by an example. So if you found a property that had a genuine net rent of $100,000 per year, and you had also found out that in that local area that properties have been selling at a cap rate or yield of 10%, I know that's going to be way out of the box now, but just for ease of comparison, that property would be worth $1 million for you to buy. Let's say they don't have the asking price. If they just tell you in an advertisement, quite often they will say, look, this property has a net income of, let's say, $100,000 a year, and it's open for offers or it's open for expressions of interest. Well, how do you work out what that property is going to be worth? So in that situation, what you would normally do is you would find out what the last sales of properties have been, what cap rate they've sold at in that local area. So let's say they were sold at a rate of 7%. So how you would work that out is simply divide $100,000, the net rent, divide that by 0.07, and that would give you a value of around $1.4 million for that property. So it's sort of working backwards by knowing just the net rent and what recent properties have sold at it, what cap rate or yield they've sold at in that local area. What's the actual best way to kind of track down that information and find that cap rate in the area? There's a number of ways, and I think you have to always use a number of ways. One of the easiest ways is to look on the real estate, the commercial real estate sites in the sold section. A lot of people forget to do that, that on the commercial real estate sites, they've got a sold button up the top. Now, it actually can be quite hard to get the information of recent sales, but you may pick up some sales. Let's say it's Bondi or something like that. You may pick up some sales in that local area, and it might be something to say, look, yeah, building you know, in Bondi Road sold at a yield of 6%, for example. And if that was fairly recent, say in the last six months, you might want to use that 6% as the number that you work out the value of the property. The next way is, of course, asking the agent for comparison sales. Now, most agents are very honest and they're going to give you, you know, the right numbers of the sales, but you would want to check those. Another way is to ring a local valuer and just say, look, I'm looking at this particular property. They often have like a sort of database of recent sales that they can sort of call on and they may then be able to say, look, Andrew, you know, if you're looking at that property, that's probably going to sell at a 7% cap rate. So then you could work backwards from that net rent. And one other way that I actually like to do, James, is I'll find 10 agents in the area. I'll have a few questions that I ask each single one and I'll write down the answers that they give me and then I'll compare them and maybe have an average of what it is so I can really get an idea from a lot of different sources of the actual cap rate in that area. Yep, that's absolutely the best thing to do. I mean, and that's actually why it's great when you're looking at property to focus on that sort of micro market within that regional town or within that city, wherever it may be, to get your head around those numbers. Now, in that situation like you're going to use, let's say your average was you know 7% that you found the properties were selling at, it'd be great if you could buy the property you're looking at at, say, 
7.5% or 8.5% because that puts you in front of the average person buying that property and obviously means you're going to buy that property a little bit better than everyone else has bought recently in that area. Yeah, and one of the actual things that's also confusing about valuing commercial property is when you're using a cap rate, if the cap rate goes up, then the value goes down. And if the cap rate goes down, then the value goes up. That's right. So let's say the average of an area was, say, 7%, as I mentioned, and then you, through hard negotiation, were able to buy that property that you were looking at at 8%. Now, one of the beauties of that, and people don't realise, it's not that you just scored a good deal and buying that a little bit cheaper. It means that, first of all, you, you are buying the property cheaper, so you're going to get higher cash flow. But in, say, 12 months' time after you've bought that property, when you get that property revalued, the valuer is probably going to apply the average cap rate to the value of that property. So he's going to use 7%, not 8%. So therefore, you can get your equity out a little bit quicker. With the equity, James, how long would you need to have bought that property before you could release that equity? Say you've done a few little quick upsides. How long would you usually wait before you pull money out of it? Look, I would generally say six months. But if there's been what valuers often call a large material change to a property, you could get something revalued in a couple of months. Now, that, say, for example, with one of my deals, you know, I leased out five shops that were previously vacant for $100,000 a year on a long lease to a gym. That's a situation where you've had a definite material change where that property suddenly earning another $100,000 a year. You could go straight back to the value and say, here's my lease, everything signed up, tenants in there, and then you can get that property revalued. But in general terms, if you're buying property that's tenanted and you've just bought it a little bit better because you've negotiated hard, you may have to wait about six months so that you could then drag your equity back out of that and recycle your equity for another deal. And does the bank call that a seasoning period or something? Does the bank have a rule about that? There's so many different banks available now and they vary a lot. Some banks will say, no, no, you need to wait 12 months. Other banks say, we want to see a a big material change or a material change to that property. And it may be renovation or uh, it may even just be that you've been able to increase the rent of that existing tenant. It might have been coming out for a market review. So pretty much you'll find that most of the value of a commercial property is based pretty much on the rental income. So if you're able to increase the rental income, it may even be by putting an ATM machine in or a sign on the, on the outside of the property that's earning 20 grand a year, something like that. They're definite things that you can go back to the bank and say, look, I've increased my rent by 30 grand a year. So I want to revalue. But if it's just a valuation just by way of you wanting to get your equity out because you've bought the property very well, it may be a slightly longer time to wait. It may be up to 12 months before you could do that. What are the most common traps people fall into when they're valuing a property? I think one of the most common things is that they're not getting the right information to the valuer. So, you know, you certainly don't want, I mean, look, it is easy with commercial properties. You've got your lease. They can look at, obviously physically look at the property. They're going to have their own comparison sales. But, you know, really you want to provide all the information to the valuer. And of course, it goes without saying that, you know, make the property look good. If it needs a coat of paint on the front awning or something like that, 
paint it, make it look great because, you know, they're not just looking at the lease. They're looking at the property. If there's general maintenance issues or they look at the aerial photo on Google and they see a completely rusted out roof, they may make a comment in the valuation that, look, this roof's going to cost 30 grand to replace and they may deduct that. So it's all common sense things. Also, they will be looking at the term of the lease. Quite often, they'll make a comment about the tenant perhaps being in there for a very long time, which is a good thing. Sometimes they'll make a comment if they think the tenant's struggling. So all these points that obviously you'd want to take into account when you're buying the property in the first place. But if there's things that you can remedy after you've bought the property, which maybe increase the rent a little bit, try and get a longer term lease, tidy the property up a little bit. If you've got to get a new tenant, for example, do that before you get it valued and have a nice fresh lease in place. Often too, tenants do very expensive fit outs and it's physical work in your property and that can make a big difference as well. So all these things, sort of common sense things, often I talk to people and they say, oh, I've just given the value of the lease and I'd like to talk to your value as well. You can pick up the phone and say, look, I've got a great tenant in this shop. She's always paid a rent. I can send you some rental statements. She's got a great business, been there 10 years, just painted it, just done a fit out. All these things, you know, are positive things that you uh, want to tell the valuer. And and if you've got some development potential in that property, you can say, look, here's my uh, letter from my town planner telling me that I can develop something on the back of this property. That's a big thing as well. So, and I would always suggest chat to a valuer that's going to do it. And you'll find that uh, most of them are very approachable because it makes their job a little bit easier. And and if you've got a good set of plans for the property, you'll want to give those to them as well. So that that makes their job a little bit easier. As an investor as well, if you're trying to just do your own valuation of the property, it's it's using the correct figures, isn't it? The net income. That's right. And it's just extremely important. And just using the example, say, you know, wandering down a a street that's got a couple of shops for sale and let's say it's got 20 shops in a street and there's three for sale and all the others are rented now if you're looking at one particular shop and it's you know $500 a week net rent for example and they're paying 500 plus outgoings and then you look at a similar shop that's two or three doors down and it's only 400 a week and you start to realize that the average rental for those shops is 400 a week or so much per square meter you know that's that's generally how it goes. And you think, well, hang on a minute, the shop that I'm looking at for sale, their rent's too high. Their rent is actually 10% too high, for example, or 15% too high. So it doesn't mean it's a deal breaker. It just means that when you're doing your numbers, you might use a net rent figure to work out what offer price you're going to make. You might discount that by 15%. You know, you might say, well, look, these people are paying 60000 a year rent, for example, but really they probably should only be paying 50,000 a year. So I'm gonna work my numbers on 50,000 a year. Now, good luck to you if you can still collect the 60,000 for the next five years. And that's often the case, by the way, but you don't wanna be in a situation where you've bought something that's, you know, they're paying 60,000 a year. It may be slightly over market. You've bought the property, probably paid a little bit too much for it. And then in two years time, you might come up to a market review and they go, hey, hey, Andrew, now we only want to pay 50000 a year, you know. So I guess summarising that, when you're looking at a property, it's really trying to get to what is the net rent and is that net rent realistic for, A, the type of property it is, the location uh, where it is, and that's often quite easy to find out, but it's very important. I've seen people buy properties that are paying 30% too high rents. Wow. 
and they've therefore paid 30% too much for that property and they just never get it back. And it's been something along the lines of the agent saying, oh, look, this tenant's paying, you know, X amount rent. That's how we're valuing the property. They don't ask any questions. Sometimes the valuer doesn't pick it up or they may even make a statement in the valuation saying, look, this rent is over market, but somehow it gets ignored and the purchaser proceeds on with the purchase only to find out in five years' time that they've really paid too much for that property and they just have to wait a long time to recover it. So being that a commercial property is valued from the net income, do you get a discount when the property's vacant? Well, look, it's a good point. You should actually get a discount, but I I guess probably not termed a discount. It's more about working out what is a realistic rent for that vacant shop and you know and that can be pretty easy to do by using those comparison rents and things that you can find out by using agents figures you might ring 10 agents as you mentioned before you might approach a value and say look what would this rent out for but on top of that you'll have to allow for and a valuer will normally do this some might say hey look, this shop's vacant, it would rent for 20 grand a year, but it would normally take about six months to lease up. So you want to allow then a cost of $10,000 because you're missing out on that $10,000 to lease that shop up. Now, on top of that, you've got agents fees. You know, you have to pay them generally, say, 10% of the first year's rent to lease it. There's another two grand. So you're up to 12 grand already. Um, Then you might want to put a coat of paint into that property, you know, and spend, say, let's say you spend... 10 grand on that property to tidy it up. So there's 22 grand that you're up for to get that property leased. Then also you might want to spend some marketing. You might say I'm going to spend five grand to uh, market that property. You're up to 27 grand. And then you might say over that six months, I'm going to have to get someone to clean the windows, make it look nice every week. You might be up to say 30 grand to lease that property up realistically. Good luck and great if you get it leased earlier. So if you're working at a price of that property, and let's say that property was going to be 400 grand, you might say, well, look, I want to pay 350,000 for that because I need to allow 30 grand to lease that up in six months. So that's how that works. It sort of works backwards. Now, not everyone, certainly an agent probably won't agree with that. (laughs) And probably the owners won't agree with that who are selling that property. But that's essentially how it works. You know, you as a hard-nosed investor need to know that there's costs involved in getting a property leased. So you need to allow for those when you're making your offer. Yeah, that's right. And I know you don't recommend buying vacant property in your course for a first-time investor. Is it hard to get lending on the vacant property? Look, not necessarily. I mean, look, if you've got a couple of properties under your belt, you've got good equity and uh, you've got good prospects of renting that property, it's not necessarily the case that you're going to find it hard to get money for that property. Obviously, much easier if you've got a nice lease to present to a bank or lender. But the other thing is, you know, you can do creative deals with vacant properties. It might have been sitting there looking very tired for six or eight months. The owner might be absolutely over it. You might be able to say, look, I'll buy this property. I want three months due diligence, a long due diligence period, for example, particularly at this current time with um, the COVID situation, you know, people getting longer due diligence periods. So in that due diligence period where you could potentially pull out because you haven't got your finance or something, you may be then able to get in there and tidy that shop up, clean the windows and get it rented. Or you might say to the owner, look, I want a six month settlement. And during that time, you go, you know, hammer and tongs at getting a tenant for that property or even 
you may even be able to buy, and it's a long shot, but you may even be able to buy that property subject to getting a tenant. Ooh, that's a good one. Well, that would be amazing. Now, look, that's a long shot, but, you know, long shot deals do come off. It's all about the motivation of the person selling that property. It might be something where they're trying to just take their mind away from that property. They might have had it for 30 years and you might say, hey, look, I'll buy this, but I need to get a a tenant for it. They may see the total merit of that and they may be prepared to give you a period of time. It might be something that, okay, we'll give you six months on a contract and then if you can't get a tenant, you can just let go of it. But also for them, the good point for them is that you may be spending money on that property. You might be putting a coat of white paint through that property, fixing the floors and cleaning the windows and keeping it looking nice. And that might be a benefit for them, even if the deal falls over. So, um, you know, there's many ways to skin a cat and you might look at 20 vacant properties and, and make an offer on all of those 20 properties based on that method. And you might get only one bite where someone's interested in selling that property subject to you getting a tenant. But, you know, that could be one to work on. Should you be wary of an owner-occupier selling to lease back the property? It's a common thing. And more and more, we're seeing people that have businesses that where they own, say, let's say a warehouse. They're running the business in there for the last 10 years. They want to expand the business and their accountant says to them, look, there's no point you owning the building when you could rent the building. You've got a million dollars tied up in this building, for example. Why not sell the building? and put the million dollars into your business or pay down some debt, whatever they're going to do with that money, and then lease back the building. So the classic thing is that then they put the property on the market and they say, look, I'm the owner selling the property, I'm the vendor and the tenant, and I'm gonna sign a five plus five lease, and the rent's gonna be $2,000 a week. And you look at it and you think, well, gee, $2,000 a week seems a bit high. It should only be 1000 So obviously then, same old thing, you really need to be working your numbers on the real rent. Now, it doesn't happen that often, I would have to say, but I have seen a few deals in the last 12 months where it's a silly thing for an owner to do, to try and hoodwink someone, really. But people do do the wrong thing. And they say, oh, yeah, I'm prepared to pay 1000 bucks a week when it's only worth, say, $600 a week. Well, obviously, if you were doing your numbers on 1000 a week, you're paying far too much for that property. It's not nice, is it, when people try and trick you into that deal and then, you know, you're really stuck with a lemon there. Yeah. And look, I would say generally, Andrew, that a value is going to pick that up. By the time you get to going for finance... In- and let's say you've agreed at a price and now you're going for evaluation, a valuer should pick that up straight away. And then in that situation, you know, I have seen a few deals where people have suddenly thought, oh my God, you know, I'm paying far too much for this property. I'm not going to get my finance. And suddenly the owner selling the property realises that this is just going to happen to every sale from now on, right? So then you you can renegotiate. But I mean, I wouldn't want someone to get to that stage and, and wait till evaluation comes. Although, some people in that situation will actually spend the money on evaluation first before they start negotiating. But, you know, that might cost you two and a half, three thousand or even four thousand dollars for evaluation just to make an offer. So I don't think you need to do that. I think you really just need to get the comparison rentals and make sure what the real rent should be for that property. If it's within five or ten percent, OK, fair enough, you might be happy just to proceed on. But if it's, say, more than 20% over or something like that, that's probably going to ring a big alarm bell. That's right. What are the three ways a valuer values property? Well, pretty much the way that they do it 
is either by the income capitalization approach, which is just, you know, basically on the net rental income. And then they will also often use, generally what seems to happen is they come up with a number like that from that first approach, which might be a million dollars. Then they'll use the sales comparison approach, which may use a number based on per square meter sale rates, particularly for things like, you know, industrial sheds. They might say, oh, look, these industrial sheds are selling at $2,000 per square meter of size for the shed. Then the third method is the cost approach, where they say, look, this building would cost $1 million or $800,000 to replace, for example. So they're the three methods. But what I generally find is, and you'll probably find it when you read a few valuations, that They'll come up with a number by the capitalization approach, and then it's sort of backed up by the other numbers, or the other numbers have come in, in a similar format. But just one point on that, quite often you'll see commercial properties that the replacement value of the building could be $2 million, for example, and the property is only selling for a million dollars. It might be an older building, you know, like I had an old bank building in Mackay that was like that, bought it for, um, I think, $600,000, and but the, the replacement value of that building was well over a million dollars, but they're never going to be able to sell it for a million dollars because the real value was based on the rental income and they're just never going to be able to obtain the replacement costs of that property because it was an ornate building and obviously very expensive to rebuild. So generally speaking, 90% of the time it's based on the, on the income. Yeah, I have noticed a lot in the industrial sector that the replacement cost far outweighs the actual cost to actually purchase it. That's right. And look, that's actually, it's a good thing in a way, because I mean, obviously you're buying, not that you're ever going to probably achieve the replacement cost if you go to sell that property, but with things like getting your depreciation schedule and things like that done as well, you know, that's sort of taken into account the physical cost of the property and, and therefore that can enhance the bottom line of your investment when it comes to tax time and writing off certain costs of that property. We'll wrap it up there, James. Today has been really good. If you'd like to learn more about how to use commercial property to reach financial freedom, James has a free webinar that you can directly access via the Commercial Property Show affiliate link, which is www.jamesdawsoncommercial.com.au forward slash CPS. And where else can they contact you, James? On jamesdawsonproperty.com.au. That's the best website, but directly through your link for the webinar is fantastic. My guest today has been James Dawson. Thank you, mate. Great. Thanks, Andrew. Chat soon. At Developer Life, we are always searching for property with development potential. If it's time to sell and you own a commercial or residential property anywhere in Australia that you think has development potential, we want to know about it we might be able to pay above market prices. You can contact us through our website at www.developalife.com.au or call us on 0410-694-633. Now back to the show. My next guest is commercial agent and head of investment sales for LJ Hooker in Queensland, Daniel Cullinane, how are you, mate? Good, mate. How are you? I'm fantastic, buddy. Now, today, the market review is in a beautiful part of the woods, Sunshine Coast. How's that market looking right now? Mate, it's going really well. There's a lot of development up there happening, um, and that's sort of translating through to a lot of new stock coming onto the market. 
primarily in the office and retail market, which is good. There's a, a 53 hectare CBD or, or city centre being developed, which is going to change the way you know Sunshine Coast locals do business. From Noosa to Caloundra, it's probably an hour drive. There's, there's different business hubs and, and sort of little CBDs all the way through and being able to centralise that is really going to change the way business is done on the coast. And I've been really lucky. I've actually had a quite a lot to do with the first building to come out of the ground, which has been enormously successful and that is due to be finished in September. So really excited to see how that comes about and you know there's going to be four or five other buildings being built in the next or you know come out of the ground in the next three to four months so that cbd is really going to change the sunshine coast was there an undersupply in office space there mate probably i don't know whether i'd say undersupply i'd probably say that you're looking at more geographic destinational supply so in maroochydore where this 53 hectare site was the sunshine coast council has purchased its Horton Park golf course site and they've actually gone through and, and done a lot of civil works to be able to facilitate this development. And what that's basically going to do is it's going to bring a lot more business to the coast. It's also going to create an A-grade office market. In the Sunshine Coast, you really don't have that high-end A-grade corporate office market. A lot of the assets that are, that are on the Sunshine Coast are owned uh, a, number of, uh, you know, a small number of people or a small number of families. And that's certainly reflected in terms of most of the tenants, they're all sort of controlled by those people. And it's good to see a lot more tenants coming into the market from Sydney, Melbourne. You know, we were even talking to some people from New Zealand who are coming over. And yeah, there's, there's a lot of that demand coming into the Sunshine Coast just due to the fact that your wages are a lot lower and mate, arguably the best lifestyle in Australia. So it's really exciting. Well, it's a big call and I definitely want to visit Sunshine Coast at, at some point. With the office space, is there many pre-sales on that? And if there isn't, is it going to create an oversupply? Mate, historically speaking, you know, your smart developers will try and put a lease in place prior to selling it because on a development feasibility basis, you'll actually make more for your sales. So a lot of the new stock that's coming on is lease only. However, due to the way that self-managed super funds are set up in Australia, there is the capability to purchase some of those in your super fund as well. In terms of your oversupply, it's not going to be an oversupply. There's just going to be a geographical change from where people do business. So people are going to be coming into the CBD. They're really going to try and make the effort to create that CBD. And then what will happen there is it's just a natural supply and demand change. What would be considered A-grade office on the Sunshine Coast will drop to B-grade office. And with that, comes the drop in rents, but everyone's got different capabilities in what they can pay. And so therefore that office supply will be absorbed by tenants who see value at that price point. So it's all price point driven, mate. Okay. So do you see potentially a vacancy issue with the B grade stock? In a regional market, and this is where we primarily work, there's always an element of vacancy like every market. And when you bring on a large number of new buildings, there potentially can be vacancy rate increases. One of the best things that we're sort of seeing out of the new Maruchi or City Centre is we're actually seeing a lot of external businesses coming into the Sunshine Coast. You know, we've spoken to those before, speaking to people from New Zealand, Brisbane, all the way around, and because people want to get there, people want to move there. The Sunshine Coast has one of the highest migration rates in Australia. There's people moving there every day. So to answer your question, there will be a slight increase in vacancy, but as those rents drop, demand will increase and it'll just filter through. I see it as a short-term change, but when something as substantial as a new CBD comes into a market, it's only positive. It can only be positive. Okay. So how's the other sectors going? Is there any supply or anything else coming online? Mate, your industrial properties are going really well, especially, and this is probably a statement that's reflected in, in the wider Queensland markets as well. Anything with a good tenant 
ASX or national tenant with a good lease profile is selling really well. Mate, same as your retail tenants. Obviously, COVID-19 has put a bit of a spin on everything and I don't think anybody saw it coming. However, what we're sort of finding in the market over the last month is the fact that if you've got a tenant who's a national tenant, people see that, or an ASX is a tenant, people see that as pretty shiny. You know, your super cheap autos, um, you know, your KFCs, those type of assets are all still selling really well and there's still an abundance of demand. The biggest thing I'm sort of finding is the fact that there's a bigger gap between your A-grade assets and your B-grade assets. And mate, with money so cheap, with interest rates so low, the opportunities are, are still there and that, I think they will continue to be there. And we're seeing a lot of new inquiry in the market for people who are out there searching for these assets because they now realise how important cash flow is. What cap rate do you think those new A-grade offices will be? And then what cap rate will the B-grade then be? Mate, very difficult to say because, you know, a lot of people just look at cap rates. So that there's actually a lot more that go into actually identifying a cap rate because at the end of the day, a cap rate is it's a marker that reflects risk. So if you've got an ASX-listed tenant who has a market capitalization of a billion dollars, the ability for those guys to go broke, you know, this is – they can, anyone can go broke, but the, the ability for those guys to go broke is, is, is minimal. So what generally happens is there's a lot more demand in the market. Therefore, your cap rates that people are prepared to pay to secure that cash flow underpinned by the strong tenants is a lot tighter. That's where we've seen KFCs who are Collins Food backed, which is an ASX listed tenant. Your other office tenants that are out there that are ASX backed or national tenant backed, as long as the balance sheet's there to support it, we're seeing cap rates between that 5% to 7%. Mate, I've sold other stuff, which has been between 7 and 10, and even some that have exceeded 10%. It all comes down to, when you look at a cap rate, you've got to break it down a little bit further. You've got to look at the whale, you know, in a multi-tenant asset, or just, you know, how long the income's guaranteed for, in short. You've got to look at the underlying company that actually secures that that lease and that, and that cash flow. So in terms of your A grade and your B grade, mate, you could see a B grade office asset that's got a really good, really strong tenant in there, that's an ASX listed tenant that would get a tighter cap rate than what your A-grade office will compared to an A-grade office that's got a poorer tenant. So investors and the guys that I advise and the guys that I talk to, it's not so much about the asset, it's about the cash flow. And that, to me, is the most important thing. And being able to ascertain how to, I suppose, secure that cash flow long term, that, to me, is where that cap rate's going to move because it's really just a reflection of the risk. Yeah, definitely. I totally agree with what you're saying. But as an investor, you kind of do want to know a range that you're going to be valuing that property at. So is that just for office? What about industrial? Generally speaking, any asset class on the Sunshine Coast, for anything that's got a good lease covenant, you're going to be looking between 6.5% to 8%. That's generally speaking, office, uh, retail, industrial, anything is going to be pretty much in that ballpark. And obviously, the tighter end of that scale is going to be your ASX and national tenants. And then the more elevated level there is going to be your more local tenants that don't have that balance sheet behind them to provide you know, that adjusted risk for that, for that investor. And what do you see in the retail market at the moment? Surely that's going to push out. Mate, look, I think at the end of the day, it all comes down to cash flow. I think retail tenants with inadequate cash reserves will struggle. I think... We can be talking about Sunshine Coast, we can be talking about Roma, we can be talking about Rockhampton. Any business that sees a drop in revenue that doesn't have sustainable cash flow is going to struggle. 
it's a fundamental economic principle. And probably not a principle, but it just makes sense. If you don't have enough money coming in the door to pay your bills, something's got to give. So, mate, I think there will be a little bit. It's going to, again, it's going to depend on the tenant. If you've got a 7 Eleven that's trading really well, a Domino's Pizza that's trading really well, it's a lot different to an ice cream shop on the Moorbar Esplanade. You've got to look at where the rents are, if they're sustainable. There's a lot of different factors that go in there, mate. But, you know, in essence, the ability to be able to have some cash in the bank, to be able to maintain your costs, the ability to be able to, you know, I guess have a business that has the ability to be able to ensure your revenue keeps coming in the door is a fundamental investment criteria, in my opinion. Yeah, definitely. Are there any major tenants entering the market in the Sunshine Coast that you know of? Mate, there is. I don't know whether I can tell you about them, mate, because <laughs> okay. I'm involved in a number of them. So, mate, I'm not getting, I'm not getting in trouble off my clients if I sort of tell you who they are, unfortunately. That's but a shame. But there is, there is. So there's ASX listed companies uh, from Sydney and Melbourne. You know, national tenants from Sydney and Melbourne. We've had people in Kauai from New Zealand. We've had people from Hong Kong, Singapore, into Asia. Mate, there's even a couple of tenants coming out of you know the Americas as well. So, mate, there is. I can't tell you who they are though. But yeah, you can rest assured that there definitely is some, you know, larger national tenants coming into the market. And mate, that's purely coming across due to the fact of the amenity and the infrastructure that's coming off the back of the Maroochydore City Centre development project. Okay, fair enough. You might have to let me in on that off air. <laughs> <laughs> are there any major tenants that are that are leaving the market? I don't know whether there's any that are leaving the market because purely fundamentally looking at your wage costs on the Sunshine Coast, your wage costs on the Sunshine Coast are significantly lower than what they are in any other major city. And to be able to match the capabilities of doing business in a CBD compared to Brisbane, where you've got you might have to pay someone 30 or 40% more or, you know, Sydney, Melbourne, it doesn't make sense to move away from the Sunshine Coast. We're seeing a lot of people actually move to the Sunshine Coast. Very few people actually leave. The only people that I'm seeing that are leaving are your tenants who haven't seen or haven't foreseen potential changes in the market and haven't had the adequate cash reserves to be able to withstand any volatility. Is there much difference in a rate per square metre for office compared to industrial compared to retail? Yeah, definitely, mate. Absolutely. So your A-grade office on the Sunshine Coast is about 300 and sort of between 370 and $400 a metre net. And that, you know, that goes down to $250 a metre net on where it's located and I suppose what kind of grade it is. Industrial, you're, you know, if you've got a mezzanine there with, with some sort of high quality office, you might be getting up towards that $300 a square metre. But generally speaking, you're looking at between 80 or 90 up to about 110 $115 a square metre for warehouse. Mate, retail is incredible on the Sunshine Coast. It can go from sort of $450 a square metre up to, you know, the Moolabar Esplanade is $2,000 a square metre in some parts and, and it gets higher. So it all depends on where it's located, I suppose, to an extent who the lessor is. And it's a tourism market. So if you're in a location where there's a lot of foot traffic and a lot of tourism, um, you are going to push up to that higher rate per square metre. Yeah, well, there's some pretty high prices, aren't they? I think it is all relative, though. You know, if you're in a place where you're getting half a million people go to that particular shop every year and you can expect the revenue from those people and from that tourism supply i think that rent's got to be justified um yeah and that's it's all supply and demand mate yeah that's right so what buying opportunities are you seeing in the market right now right now i think generally speaking you've got your a-grade investments which is primarily the stuff that me and my team will work on mate basically they are asx listed tenants 
national tenants, long lease terms. They're assets that basically you go and buy a cash flow. If you've got $2 million, you go and invest it. You can expect, you know, the way interest rates are at the moment, you can expect those to be significantly positively cash flowed. So people who are nearing retirement, they can buy an asset, KFC, for example. You might be able to buy that on a 5% return. You can expect to get, after cost, you may get $100,000 positive cash flow out of that a year. And what we're finding is people are going who are buying two or three of those in, in a portfolio, potentially are having a two, three, four, five hundred thousand dollars worth of passive income coming in a year. And that's the sort of stuff, mate, that where the buying opportunities are, I think. And the A-grade tenants really underpin those premium investments or the A-grade investments out in the market. And they're everywhere. It's just a matter of talking to the people who sell them, building a relationship with those people and trying to have the opportunity to acquire them for a price and a cap rate that reflects your risk tolerance. Okay, so that's more of a, a passive investor, but what if you're an active investor? Are there areas in the Sunshine Coast that have a lot of value-add opportunities? Mate, I think if you're an active investor, if you're astute, there's value-add play on nearly everything. The advice I give to people is always buy freehold assets. Strata assets will limit the capability for your value-add. Generally, all I've got is rental reversion upside. Whereas if you look at a freehold asset, there may be potential for uh, redevelopment. You've got potential subdivisions. You've got your rental reversion. You've got so many different ways to try and value add. Mate, they're everywhere. It's just a matter of having the capital to be able to undertake it, having the risk tolerance and having the awareness to be able to find them. Generally, on the Sunshine Coast, you can buy land pretty cheap. Having a tenant to be able to come in, do a development, pull out the other side, you know, you can create equity that way. Alternatively, you could buy a vacant building on the Sunshine Coast, have a tenant go that way. Every asset, every market has its own different spin. And I think, mate, if you're an active investor and if you can partner with people or advisors that understand how these work, you know, let's just say you're not, maybe you're an amateur investor in a commercial property market or or something like that, the ability to be able to find these and, and understand the spin on how to look at them it's not very hard. It's just a matter of looking at enough property. And I think that's the key. If you look at a at hundred different opportunities, there may only be one that you think, wow, that's a cracker. And so it's the ability to be able to get across enough stuff. So mate, my advice to a lot of people is just get out there in the market, talk to people. A lot of agents, they know a lot of stuff. So you talk to them, you hear a lot of things. You, know, you don't have to be buying and selling to bring an agent and have a conversation. A lot of them will tell you stuff. And a lot of them will tell you too much. So if you just ring an agent and ask them questions and, and press them on different things, mate, the amount of stuff you can find out from people just from talking to people, you can fill your own head with ideas and ways to add value as an active investor just by having those conversations. And I think that's a really important because opportunities are everywhere. You just have to have to scratch around to find how to make them work. Yeah, that's right. It's very much a numbers game in property. I know that in my own property development sourcing business that the more letters I send out to the vendors, the more replies I'm going to get. But it's just uh, having you know, a constant kind of flow of direct mail going out to get those opportunities. Absolutely, man. And look, I think the ability to have people that you know and trust as well. You know, like I've got so many people that I speak to on a daily basis that are looking for different opportunities. And I take great, great pride and great satisfaction in being able to help those people because we come across so many opportunities and not everything suits everyone. But the more people you know and the more people you talk to, the more people you can push in different directions and, and try and, you know, manifest different opportunities. And I welcome anybody to give me a call at any time to have a chat about what you're looking for because I'm nearly certain we'll be able to find something for you somewhere. That's great. 
So what about selling opportunities? People that need to sell or are there any selling opportunities out there right now? Mate, you can't ask a real estate agent if there's any selling opportunities. There's always selling opportunities. Um, <laughs> mate, there is, you know, as, as I just said, there's always opportunities there for people who know what to look for. And, mate, one thing I've noted in the last few years is that there's been a lot of people that have made a lot of money through property. Not everyone has reinvested all their capital. I know 100 people probably that are out there actively looking for stuff at the moment. And selling opportunities, if there's an opportunity there that you've got a property you don't know what to do with or you've got a property that's just you've come back and said, hey, look, I've got an asset with an industrial tenant that's just renewed their lease. I wouldn't mind testing the market. Now's the time because everything in property is to do with supply and demand. At the moment, your supply on the market is so low. Everybody's saying, oh, I'm not too sure what's going to happen. But I can tell you the amount of inquiry that we're getting, the amount of people we're talking to that's still out there with cash ready to buy stuff is still there. We're talking to people all the time. Yes, COVID-19 is out there, but it's going to finish. We're going to come out the other end of it and there's going to be opportunities there. So in terms of selling opportunities there for the right asset, for the right opportunity, when you talk to the right people that know how to push in front of the right purchases, this time is, is as good as any. Are there any big infrastructure projects planned for the Sunshine Coast? Sunshine Coast has got, uh, as we know, the 53-hectare site in Merchador, which is going to be the new city centre, which is a major, major piece of infrastructure. There's also down in Batinia, which is sort of just on the southern end of the coast. There's a, a multi-billion dollar hospital precinct that's just been developed. It's got a $1.6 billion public and private hospital there with you know, over a 1,000 beds. It's also surrounded by an abundance of medical infrastructure, which is really putting the Sunshine Coast on the forefront of the southeast Queensland medical profession, which is great. Mate, Lendlease has spent $440 million developing the Sunshine Plaza, which is now a world-class shopping destination. You know, Gold Coast has got Pacific Fair. We've got Sunshine Coast Plaza. I look at them, they're very similar. I don't know if I'd go to Pacific Fair because it's on the Gold Coast. I'd much rather come to the Sunshine Coast. It's got everything that Pacific Fair's got. And to me, I see it as a superior shopping centre. Probably another major piece of infrastructure that's really going to change the Sunshine Coast is the airport. The airport's currently undergoing a major development where they're lengthening the runway. And what it's going to do is it's going to increase the size of planes that can fly into the Sunshine Coast. And what that's going to do basically is it's just going to open up international travel. And previously down the Gold Coast, the amount of Asian tourists uh, and tourists that are coming from Asia, and that's not just China, Singapore, Macau, Hong Kong, all the way through, are coming over to the Gold Coast. They go to the casino, they spend money on the property. There's so much flow on effect. And I went to uni down the Gold Coast and seeing how that changes things, even educationally. Bond University, the amount of Asian students that come over to study there because it's beautiful. They, you know, they love it like we all do. I just think the airport is such a massive opportunity for the Sunshine Coast to grow economically. It's just going to be fantastic. I can't speak highly enough about it. Great. So around the airport, is there much available industrial land? Mate, there's a little bit. There's more to come. So the first thing they're working on is the uh, runway. Once that's finished, I believe there's more plans to try and release some more infrastructure into there in terms of industrial, a bit more retail. But mate, to my knowledge, nothing has been finalised as yet. So the future looks good for Sunshine Coast. Mate, I think the future looks good for Queensland. Definitely. All right, mate. Well, where can the listeners go to find out more about your services? 
Mate, they're welcome to give me a call, 0431 278 or my email address is dcullinane at ljht.com.au. Happy to take anyone's call at any time. Fantastic, mate. Thank you, Daniel Cullinane from LJ Hooker for today's market review. Pleasure, mate. Thank you. Our next guest is a guru in the tourism sector and the director of Tourism Brokers, Michael Philpot. How are you, mate? Yeah, good, Andrew. Thanks very much for this. No worries, buddy. Mate, can you briefly explain what your company does and the type of property that you deal with? We sell hotels, motels, tourism parks, manufactured home estates and development sites. We're primarily tourism related. But obviously, when it comes to caravan parks and the like, we take into account permanence, manufactured home estates and greenfield sites. Oh, great. We'll talk about that a little bit later. So, mate, 2020 hasn't been a very good year for the tourism sector with the bushfires earlier on this year and now the coronavirus. How have the operators responded to COVID-19? Look, some of the parks closed down, like the permanent tourisms. Some of the others remained open. Some of the mining sectors closed the doors and kept it focused on their mining clients. And uh, the industry generally is no different to the hotels and motels and the like. You've got exceptions, but the vast majority are along the coast and they were doing it pretty tough. Some of the inland parks with the constraints relative to travel distances and timing, they could appeal to their permanence. But when it comes to the tourism and marketing for tourism operators, and taking tourists in, they couldn't do that. But they were able to take into account essential services, workers, construction people, and the like. So, but generally the figures are down, but that's right across every industry. And as we saw through the the last GFC, caravan parks will come back a lot stronger than the other industries very quickly. Have you seen any distressed sales in the marketplace? No. Okay. So what about transactions? Is Have there been many transactions during this period? Look, there's been a couple that have gone through. They were ones that negotiated pre-COVID. There hasn't been much happening relative to transactions in the overall COVID period, primarily because of the vast majority require finance and the vast majority require banks. A lot of the banks actually closed up shop. And now we're seeing a change in the marketplace where the likes of Commonwealth Bank, for example, they were doing 65% for commercial real estate. Uh, they've brought that loan ratio back to 50%. But then you're starting to see some of the others, when they're looking at forward bookings, they're looking at risk profiles, and they're starting to identify that the market will kick along quite well. They're starting to develop an appetite. But the issue has always been finance over the COVID period, because most of the banks went into shutdown or looking after their existing clients and looking after instalments or putting the the repayments off until September. But now the market's starting to get some direction in place. We've got the state premiers opening the market up. New South Wales will do quite well. Queensland's been doing extremely well when it comes to the, the rural, as in the mining sectors. And some of the other states have been doing well on the mining sectors, but ultimately they need tourism. Now that the restrictions are easing, do you think it's going to bounce back quite quickly? Yes, because caravan parks are traditionally safer than a lot of the motels. 
you've got your distancing issues that need to be taken into account, but it also comes back to hygiene. It's a lot easier to get your distancing issues and your hygiene and that addressed relative to caravan parks when comparing them to hotels and motels. Yeah, caravan parks are actually quite an interesting asset class. So let's actually switch to talking about investing in a caravan park because the cash flow that they achieve is actually quite amazing from some of these parks. And I think if you choose wisely, they can be quite a fantastic investment. So what attributes should you look for if you want to invest in a caravan park? It largely depends upon your price range that you're able to afford. But as you go up the ladder, then the higher the returns. But ultimately, you're looking at if you've got tourism, well, then is it straight tourism? Has it got a, a manufactured home estate on the side of it? Has it got some permanence on the side of it? Has it got the ability to grow? Have you got adjoining properties around the area? What infrastructure is in place? What's the zoning that council's going to have in place in the initial term and the long term? Because you've got to remember that a lot of these are land banks as well and that the ultimate underlying land value can change significantly over the years. But if you've got a council park or a, a crown land lease with a park that's oceanfront, well, then you're looking at the security of tenure and the highest and best use relative to the property, but also the frequency of guests that are coming through, the tariffs that you can charge and the occupancy levels that go with it. If you're along the coastal areas, um, then obviously you're going to be charging a premium for your tariffs, but you're also going to have an extremely high occupancy. And certainly the closer you are to larger regional centres or more ecotourism areas, then the higher the occupancy and the higher the bottom line. Profit-wise, these things operate around 30 to 35% operational costs. And then depending upon a, a lease arrangement, they pay out the rental. Or if it's a freehold, well, then you're looking at 60 to 65% profit margin as an operational business, which is quite high. Yeah, that is actually quite high, isn't it? So can you just explain for the listeners that don't know anything about caravan parks, what the permanent residence is and how that actually works? Okay, you've got a mixture of agreements or a mixture of businesses, and that's why they're very diverse businesses within the one entity. So if you've got a permanent, then you might have someone that's living on site. They actually own the improvements or a manufactured home estate, so the, the direction that it's going. But basically, the improvements are owned by the occupier. And then they have a, a term lease, which is normally up to 99 years, but it can vary from state to state depending upon the legislation. But it is quite secure where every week they pay a, a ground rental and there may be a proportion of outgoings paid for gas and electricity, depending upon if it's reticulated services that are within it. But they're quite low rates relative to the overall asset value. And they are recognised and do qualify for rental subsidies by the government departments or the Centrelink or the equivalent thereof, where they ultimately the vast majority of it is subsidised by the government. So it can be a very cheap and financially rewarding area to locate. Yeah, so basically it's just they own the building on top of the land and you're renting the land to them. Is that right? Yeah. The modern ones now are called manufactured home estates where they actually go in, they'll buy a property, it might be anywhere from $300,000 up to as high as a million dollars. Around the likes of Port Macquarie, it's sort of in that mid 600s. 
There are parks that do offer stuff in that three to 400,000 band, but ultimately you're buying a new or a, a near new property on top, as in a house or a constructed area, and you're leasing the land from the caravan park. And that allows you to stay in there. It becomes your principal place of residence. But from an asset perspective, if you're the occupier, it's not regarded as an asset per se. It's regarded as a chattel. So if there are any of the Centrelink tests, then it's not an asset that you need to declare. I understand that it's actually quite hard to get lending on one of these, isn't it? Yeah, they're regarded as chattels. So... But the market is changing. And certainly if you look at America and you look at other diverse multicultural countries throughout the world where these exist, and certainly America is the benchmark that they follow on, a lot of people can't afford their retirement. So they need to get ahead. And the way that they do that is that they might cash up their property or cash up their small unit in Sydney, and they'll buy one of these in an MHE facility and the MHE facility might have a library, might have a bowling green, might have a swimming pool, community facilities, gymnasium, and have anywhere from 100 to 400 properties around it, but you're actually buying part of a community. And their two to $300,000 will get you into that. From a bank perspective, because it's a chattel, it's no different to the likes of a car, where you can go off and you can borrow to buy a car, and you can go off and borrow to buy a house, but most people actually go in there, buy the house with what they've got, set themselves up for retirement, and then qualify for a rental subsidy from the government going forward. Okay, so some councils allow permanent stays in some parks, but others don't. What are the attributes that are required for permanent stays? It largely depends upon the zoning and upon the services. Some of the parks can be designed for over 55s, so you've got retirees. Some of them will have been around for many years and they've got existing use rights provisions, but the, ultimately for the permanent parks, they've got an allocated area and that allows the park owner to have a stable source of income for a portion of the business and then they supplement that with tourism. And tourism obviously pays a higher price and goes into a, a different category, but it's very seasonal, whereas the permanent parks are quite reliable and quite constant. So a lot of the, the secondary parks do have a tendency to go into permanents. A lot of the greenfield sites are going across to permanents because they can be quite stable, and a lot of the institutions do like them. And the bigger they are, the better off they are. When it comes to tourism parks, then you've got to worry about barbecues, you've got to worry about noise, you've got to worry about people that are there to party. When you've got permanent parks, they're more along the lines of retirement, they're community-based, and they don't have the same level of maintenance, upkeep and disputes as you get in the likes of tourism parks. Yeah, it's quite interesting, isn't it? And I think these type of parks are quite recession-resistant as well. Absolutely. Like, if you've got a holiday park... Uh, they're totally focused on the tourism industry. They've got high returns attached. But if you've got a permanent park and your occupants are all permanents, then they're there for life. That's their home. They're not going anywhere. It's recession-proof. They'll continue to pay it. They get the subsidies to pay it. And quite often, they'll come and assist you when it comes to the maintenance and upkeep of the premises as well, keeping the operational costs down but adding and assisting to the overall community asset.
Okay, so if you're looking at, say, uh, conversion or you're looking at a, investing in a caravan park, what kind of cap rate on average would you expect? Obviously, the coast is for show and the country's for dough. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the country locations, you'll get up to that 15, up to 25% returns, depending upon freeholds and leaseholds. And if you're getting into regional centres, then you're getting into the 10s and the 12s. If you're going along the coast, it might be the 8 to the 10s. But they're face value returns. What you've got to take into account also is that these are commercial assets. So that if you buy an unapportioned contract, you do get the ability as the purchaser to go in and with a quantity surveyor, organise a revaluation and a new depreciation schedule for the assets. So for the first, depending upon the lease or the freehold, but certainly for a, a leasehold arrangement, effectively that allows you to legitimately depreciate the assets, not pay tax on the income that's being received for the first three or four years, use that depreciation to get ahead. And when you pay back banks and you go into debt, you can only ever pay them back in effective after-tax dollars where you pay the tax on it or you use the depreciation schedule. So using that system and using the small business tax concession system, you are able to go in there, you borrow a lot of money, you pay back the money very quickly, you use the depreciation allowance, you then borrow against the park because it's your asset, and you then either go off and buy another asset or you develop the park, or alternatively using the small business concessions if you've got the right accountant and the right structure in place. When you sell the property at a profit, because you've got to take into account that depreciation comes off your capital value. So I'll take it back to the basics. If you buy something for a million dollars and you get $700,000 depreciation, and that's not uncommon, it ranges from park to park, but a lot of these are being sold below replacement value. Then if you use that $700,000 depreciation, your tax base for the purchase of the property drops from a million down to $300,000. So when you sell the park, if you've gone through and improved it and everything else at $1.2 million, your base is still $300,000 with about CPI increases or for the context of the argument, it's 300,000. So therefore, in theory, you might have a taxable amount of $900,000. But if you use the small business concessions and your structure is correct, once you sell, you, provided you meet the timeframes and the systems, you roll that over into your next asset and you buy your next asset, then you do exactly the same. And this time it might be something for $2 million and you go bigger, but you depreciate the asset, you pay back the bank and you get bigger and bigger. And ultimately, um, if you've been in the industry for some time and you qualify for the small business concessions, then I think it's about $2 million per husband and wife that you can put aside before you actually have to pay capital gains tax when you retire. So it's a very nice nest egg that you can build up over time. That actually sounds like an American tax concession, the 1041 exchange. Oh, there's similar rules around the world. It's all part of um, incentive that makes it work for the world. 
and makes it work relative to the, the locations. There are risks involved when you're buying a business, but if you do the basics well, and the, the vast majority of people don't always do the basics well, but if you do the basics well, it's pretty hard to fail in this industry. So if you have a clean offering, you market it well, you communicate with people, you'll get it through. But because there are risks there, the government does need to incentivise. But that's a, this is a small business concession that you qualify when you enter into the small business industry. It's not just for caravan parks or for motels or for corner stores. That's where you get the right tax advice. But certainly when it comes to the tourism industry and caravan parks that we're talking about now, it is very lucrative, very beneficial and set you up in the long term. And if you've got family trusts involved in other structures, you can set yourself up, you can set your next generation or your family up and have a long future ahead. Yeah, I think there are so many upsides in this. It's, it's actually quite interesting. I mean, it's kind of a bit of an untapped resource. What do you think about you buy an old park that has some permanence and increasing the amount of permanence? Are parks with permanence, are they valued higher? It depends upon the age of the park, the infrastructure and the location. If you can convert it to a permanent park, like a manufactured home estate, then, and you're doing the development there, if you're subdividing off the, the lots and selling the houses on, obviously you're making a commission on the houses, but you're also making a development profit along the way, that can be extremely lucrative. But it comes back to the diversification and position within the marketplace. Businesses are all about cash flow. So if you can minimise the risk by having some in the way of permits, some in the way of tourism, then it's a good mix. But you need designated areas because you don't want permanent people mixing with your tourists. So that comes back to the size. And it also comes back to what's offering around the area. So if you're um, in a growing area, and you're, you've got the ability to set up your park, do your manufactured home estate, then have your infrastructure in place, then obviously you're the key person to actually buy the adjoining owner and expand the park and make more profit along the way because you've got regular reliable cash flow. Because of that, you're low risk when it comes to banks, but it's low risk as an industry because it's marvellous what you can do when you actually have money in your pocket. When you're comparing um, caravan parks to the likes of industrial sheds or uh, retail, the tenants within industrial sheds and retail, they can close down today, open up next door, and they're operational tomorrow. Whereas when the likes of caravan parks and motels and tourism properties and permits, all the infrastructure's in place. It's purpose-built. It's there. So you can't readily replace them but you get the continual cash flow so you can add value along the way. And it's like the sand in the hourglass. Ultimately, it fills up and it's just constant and it keeps going through. You don't have the vacancy factors and you don't have the same risk profiles. That's why they're very popular. Is it quite easy to get these converted to permanent parks? It depends upon the zoning. It depends upon the services around the area and it depends upon council. Council are in favour of them. The respective state governments around the country are in favour of them. It's all filling a niche within the marketplace that relates to the number of retirees that are coming through the system that can't afford to cater for their retirement 
And this is a viable option that provides a number of services that creates a community that's very cost effective. And some of them are taking it to the next extreme where you've got emergency alarms for retirement. But by the time you throw in the likes of pools, gyms, bowling greens and other facilities, it's just a matter of scale. And that's why we're seeing a lot of institutions that are entering the space because they're seeing this as a real opportunity to capitalise on it. Now, institutions are at the top end, mum and dads are in the middle, so there's always a gap along the way where someone can come in there and make some good money. And this is one of the last remaining areas where you can easily make some good money through doing the basics. When it comes to the planning and the zoning, a lot of these are allowed in areas that aren't necessarily available for other development types to encourage them through. So, yes, they are quite easy to do. If they're so lucrative, why don't more developers do this type of development? Most people stick to the knitting and stick to the stuff that they know. They don't understand it. Then you've got to find the sites, and the sites are spread throughout the country. Mum and dad operators and mum and dad investors are quite different to the developers. The developers need large ones for economies of scale to fit it in. A lot of your um, parties, I take it, would be sort of the the mid-level, the mum and dad investors, the ones that are starting off. They've got the ability to pick up and move, and then you can go through the process. But when it comes to developers generally, they're not land bankers, and a lot of caravan parks fall within land banks. Developers are people that want to get in there, make an enhancement, do it very quickly, make a profit and run. They don't normally have a lot of capital behind them. They work on pre-sales. They work on a, a different construction mix where they need to get in there very quickly, whereas caravan parks traditionally are a slow burn. And they're a very good profitable burn, but they take time to build up along the way. And a lot of developers don't have that time behind them. Yeah, so it's very much a cash flow play, isn't it? Yeah, What areas in Australia do you see the need for this type of development? Australia-wide, it comes back to tourism. Like during the 80s, we saw a lot of growth and that up in the likes of Cairns, Port Douglas, those sorts of locations. But now it's very much along the lines of demographers, the likes of Bernard Salt and others have identified this massive wave of people that are coming through from retirement. Now that we've had the corona situation, People that are 50 and plus, um, they're basically on the scrap heap from an employment of a corporate perspective. So they've got to buy jobs or they've got to relocate and cater for their future. They're the ones that will get the biggest benefits out of it. And as such, certainly along the, the East Coast is the primary driver. Then you're starting to go into regional centres where you've got good hospitals and services around you. But without doubt, the East Coast is the main driver. Then you're getting closer to the likes of the Adelaides, the Perth, the the Darwins, but major centres. When you're getting into New South Wales, the Orange, Bathurst, Swaggers, the regional centres are coming into their own as well. The places where you just listed, are they the places where the opportunity is or is it just they just need it? Look, there's opportunities, but they also need it. And most of the opportunities are still on the existing stock and the existing stock remains, yes, you get some inland parks, but you get coastal parks. And a lot of the opportunities are very much in the growing areas. And people traditionally, if they're in Melbourne, 
they want to go north. They don't necessarily want to go to Sydney. Sometimes Melbourneites do go up to the likes of Cairns, and one of the biggest consumers around Cairns seems to be people that originated from Melbourne. But when they're in Sydney, they want to go up the, the north coast, and that generally people have a tendency to go that one degree warmer in their respective areas. So the, the central coast, the Gosfords, the Newcastles, there is some infrastructure that's now been put in place relative to the, the main feeder roads out of Sydney, and certainly the freeways that are connecting Sydney to Brisbane have made a big difference. So we've seen the likes of Coffs Harbour go from a marginal location where it was a very much a boom and bust to a reliable location. Port Macquarie is going through continual booms and there's a lot of people that are wanting to move in there. But because we've now seen the south coast open up with the roads, we're seeing similar sort of things happening with the likes of Wollongong down to the likes of Berry, Nowra, those sorts of locations because it's convenient access. The keys are people, the keys are where are the people at, how do they access their families if they want to, where do they live now and how do they get back there if they need to. Uh, so it comes back to essential roads and infrastructure, then it's lifestyle. What's there in the way of beaches? What's there in the way of services? Yeah, well, it's a very interesting subject and I think it definitely requires a lot more research. But where can listeners go to find out more about you and your services? We've got a website, www.tourismbrokers.com.au. We do have information that we willingly share with people if they go to the trouble of contacting us that will explain the manufactured um, housing industry and um, caravan parks and tourism opportunities generally. We are a sales organisation, but we're also about growing the business. We do have, with the Caravan and Camping Industry Association and other links, there's a number of presentations and forums that are out and about in the marketplace. But certainly if someone wants to contact us, we'll provide information. And some of that information is also available on our website. Well, fantastic, mate. My guest today has been Michael Philpot. Thanks, Michael. No problems at all. Thank you. Take care. The mentor and seven-time author with 50 years of experience under his belt joins me again today, Chris Lang. How are you, mate? I'm good. And you? Yeah, I'm very good. Chris, I wanted to get back to basics today and talk about the most effective ways to add value to your property. Well, as those of your listeners have already listened to the keynote address on my nine-step investment formula, the eighth step of that, and that's in the third phase, which is after you've bought the property, is adding value. And there are there are actually quite a few ways you can do that to speed up the rate at which your property grows in value. But they basically fall into two categories. The first of which you might say is construction related. Now, here, the options you've got are undertaking an upgrade, refurbishing or perhaps changing the use in the process and simply subdividing the property into smaller components. So when we talk about refurbishing, that means that you completely gut the property and strip it back to its bare floor, walls and ceiling and then start replacing everything with modern day materials and services. And you'll actually do that when your tenants vacate at the end of the lease. Now, it is possible to do it with a tenant in place, but it's not easy, but it is possible. 
in any event, the main purpose of upgrading is to attract a better tenant and achieve a higher rental for the same property. Now, sure, you're going to need to make an investment into the refurbishing costs. However, most of these can be claimed as depreciation over the next five to seven years. And generally, the rental will increase. And when that increased rental is divided by the selling yield, it should represent an increase in value of somewhere between two to three times your actual construction costs involved. So that's the first one. Now, in the same category, the change of use. And, and the greatest improvement will generally come about with older buildings where you may have had a long-standing tenant who finally vacates and where the building, it could be one that's been sold in, as vacant possession and lends itself to conversion for occupation by a tenant wanting to make an image statement because sometimes there are some tenants that even you know office tenants that enjoy the older building exposed bricks and things like that. So as you can see, the original architecture features that are generally left intact and that it then comes down to some clever petitioning, feature lighting, modern air conditioning and, of course, brand new high-tech services. And after that, there's very little ongoing maintenance either for you or the tenant. And then finally in this category, you've got the simple subdivision, which may involve an entire building where you cut it each floor into a separate title or most people don't realise, but even for a strata title floor, it is possible to further subdivide that. It all comes down to where your toilets are located and things like that so that you don't end up creating a, any additional common area. But provided you can get a simple subdivision, you can further subdivide a strata title floor as of right. You have to advise the owner's corporation what you're doing, but other than that, as I said, you can do that as of right. Obviously, it works best, as I said, when the common area facilities like the lift and the stairs and the bathroom are all located close together. And that way, you want to take minimal petitioning to achieve the necessary subdivision. Okay, so in your experience, how long would a strata subdivision usually take? Well... You need to get involved, A when I say an architect, it could be a, a designer associated with a building surveyor because the building surveyor has to ensure that the petition separating the two titles is fire isolated. And one thing you need to ensure is that that dividing petition extends to the underside of the floor above, assuming it's a multi-level building to achieve the fire rating. So at the moment, you might have a false ceiling and any of the fit-out petitioning goes to the false ceiling. But when you do the subdivision, you've actually got to penetrate that false ceiling and take your wall up to the underside of the concrete floor immediately above. And you also have to install separate electrical meters for each tenancy. And other than that, it's, it's generally a fairly easy exercise for the right floor layout, which is something that you've got to be mindful at the time when you originally purchased the property. But if you achieve a, a subdivision, you can generally save about 0.5% off your selling yield. So it's not insignificant. I mean, in other words, if you bought the property on, say, 6.5% net, you could probably sell the individual ones at 6%. You might even be able to have a selling yield of 575 for the same income stream. But even if you sold them together, it would improve the value because 
let's say you bought the floor for a million dollars, by getting a separate title, you don't have two properties worth half a million. They're probably each worth, say, 600, maybe 650, because there are more people able to pay five or 600,000 than there are people that are able to pay a million. So it has an immediate impact. I guess it's bringing the asset into the buyer's pool that has the most amount of buyers in it. Well, yeah, look, I mean, if you think about it, you can buy an apartment for five or $600,000. So if you can get an office for that, why wouldn't you? I mean, your net yield on an apartment is probably two and a half, three percent 3%, whereas your net yield on something like that is 575 to 6%. So, you know, you almost double your return. And I didn't quite answer your question before, but how long does it take? The building works, as I said, the petition you have to put in, there may be some other modifications, but generally it's not a big expense. It's more time. You've got to get the plans approved by the building surveyor and you don't do it through the council. There's no longer a requirement to get a building permit from a council. You get an independent building surveyor. And generally they're I've got one that when I say is cooperative, if there's some issues, you might say with disabled access and things like that, they can sometimes give you a dispensation so that you don't have to have massive expenditure. But once the plans are drawn and you have to submit them to the titles office, that can take six to nine months to get it through. And it's nothing else you have to do. It's just the red tape and process and so forth. So what I recommend to clients is that almost within the first six months after they've purchased the property, that's the time to do your subdivision. Now, even if you've got one tenant and you're creating two titles, you can actually get a permit and two titles issued subject to doing the building works at a later date. You can't sell them individually, but you can get all the prelim work done. So if and when the tenant vacates, all you've got to do is put up the dividing petition. You've already got the titles and having done that work, you're then able to sell them as individual titles. Is there an expiry date on that registration? No, the titles you have and that runs there. The only impediment is that you can't sell them individually. You can still sell them together to one party with one tenant and they would inherit that issue that they, yes, they've got two titles, but if they want to sell them separately, they have to put up the dividing wall and any other associated minor building works. But no, the title once issued is standing. Okay, great. The next category involves proper property management. And here it involves three areas you can work on, rental and costs, being proactive and being creative. Now, the logical move to achieve an, an increase in rental, it makes sense, but you first have to be seen as a caring landlord. And you do this by making some cosmetic improvements at least nine to 12 months out before an upcoming market review, which is intended to place your tenant in a more receptive frame of mind. So the tenant doesn't feel you just squeezing money out of the property without doing anything. Now, if you own the property outright, that's easy. If you are part of a, an owner's corporation, in other words, have a strata floor, 
It may be that the foyer downstairs is a bit outdated or whatever, and when you attend the owners' corporation meeting, you might make the suggestion, look, why don't we all chip in and do a paint job and a bit of landscaping in the foyer just to improve the overall look and feel of the building. Now, assuming that goes ahead, then you make sure that you let your tenant know well in advance that this work is going to take place and you were instrumental in having it voted for in the owners' corporation. So, you quietly get the message across that, as I said, you are a, a caring landlord. So, as I said, you generally want to do that 12, 9 to 12 months out before the review. So then you look about reducing costs. Now, unlike residential leases, most commercial leases require the tenant to pay a net rent plus outgoings. Now, the lease can provide them for them to pay all the outgoings. If they're a retail tenant, then you can't recoup land tax, but you can for all other tenants. And and I don't have a lot of favour for retail anyway, so that's a distant third on my list of priorities. So that generally is not a problem. But you might say, well, if they're paying all the outgoings, why would you bother about reducing the costs? Well, when the rent review comes around, if you can't agree on the rent, the lease provides that you jointly appoint a determining valuer. Now, that valuer looks at total occupancy costs should a dispute arise with your tenant. And when I say that, they get comparable properties and they look at it and say, well, the total building cost per square metre for this building is so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. Now, so they establish what should be the total occupancy cost. So if you have worked hard to keep your outgoings down, by definition, the rental proportion of the total occupancy costs can be higher. So yes, they pay them, but it's not in your interest to have them any higher than they should be. So the lower the outgoings, the higher your potential net rent increase will be. And therefore, it's in everyone's interest to keep a close watch on the level of the property outgoings. Okay, and that's referring to a net lease. Yes, it is. But even if it's a gross lease, you want to keep the outgoings down because the tenant's paying a gross sum, a proportion of which is outgoing. So the lower the outgoings are, the greater proportion of that amount you pocket as rent. Yep. Now, a variation is that you should encourage your property manager to be proactive. And by that, I mean, again, taking the initiative 12 months out before the lease, assuming the tenants are happy Your property manager might broach with them the topic of exercising their option early and by doing so float the idea that perhaps he or she, the property manager, might be able to swing a month's rent free in the process. Now, the idea is that or the impression they're giving is that it's their idea. It's just they don't ring up and talk about it specifically. They might ring about something else and say, by the way, I've noticed your options coming up in 12 months time. We might be able to swing a bit of rent free your way if you want to. Are you happy there? And the tenant says, yeah, I'm happy. Well, say, well, look, I know you don't have to exercise it for another six, nine months, but if you exercise it now, I reckon I could swing you a month's rent free. Now, the reason for that is from the tenant's point of view, it's a no-cost act. I mean, if they're happy, they're going to exercise it anyway. So why not? Why not exercise it now? And But from your point of view, you say, oh, well, I'm giving away a month. It might be two months rent free. But if you've got a three-year lease with a three-year option and it's got a year to run, you immediately have a four-year lease as soon as they exercise their option. Mm. which if you wanted to refinance the property, a vendor is going to look a lot more favourably on a four-year lease than they are on a 12-month lease. Yeah, wow. So it's a very simple way to add value. So 
as you can appreciate, your property manager's got to act as though they're proposing it without any authority from you as the owner. The property manager, obviously, they get paid by collecting the rent. So have you had any pushback from proposing that to them because they're not going to be collecting any money that month? Well, yes and no. What I generally try and do with the properties that I help my clients buy is most of the leases, certainly in Melbourne I'm talking about, are what are called Law Institute leases. They're standard documents. But within the building outgoings, there is a provision for the outgoings to include a reasonable amount for the administration of the property. So, Assuming that is in the in the lease, I then say to the managing agent on behalf of my client is, let's work out your fee, we'll divide it by 12, and then you will set up a reoccurring monthly charge as an administration fee, fixed dollar, not the percentage that they normally work out, so that that gets charged to the tenant. So we actually get the tenant to pay for the ongoing management of the property. That always seems to get left out of the information memorandums, isn't it? The management costs. Well, it does. And as I said, that's one of the first things I look at is whether the lease provides for that to happen, whether it is or not, because I mean, a lot of managing agents, they do what everyone else has ever done over time. They just charge a percentage of rent, but they don't actually delve into the lease as I've done for my clients and establish the fact that you can actually recoup that from the tenant. Yeah, great. Did you have one more? Yeah, we were talking about being creative and where you've got a building with a number of strata title offices, smaller tenants that don't want to set aside space for boardrooms, which generally only get used once or twice a month. I mean, maybe if they have clients coming in, they might use it as meeting rooms. Most people now tend to go meet the clients at a cafe or somewhere like that rather than have a formal meeting, but you might have a number of people come in. So you do use it maybe once a week. Now, what you could do is encourage the owner's corporation to set aside a tenancy just for that purpose, where the entire building could then use that small tenancy to simply book their time online. So it provides an additional service within the building. So in other words, it may or may not be your tenancy that you're talking about, but it has a meeting room. It's all set up with facilities. The owner's corporation takes the lease over it, but it enables anyone in the building because you can set it up very simply with software, as you know, book appointments and so forth. But either way, it provides a valuable service to the tenants of the building and thereby will add value immediately to your property in the process because it means that your tenant doesn't then have to set aside the meeting room, which for 80% of the time is is not used. Yeah, wow. You know, it means they could probably employ another two people without moving on and having to expand. Yeah, that's good, isn't it? I suppose the, maybe one other thing is that every four years, the council carries out a statutory revaluation. That forms the basis of your council rates, your water rates, and your land tax. Now, most people aren't aware that you can actually dispute them. And again, we're talking about total occupancy costs because sometimes the council's valuer doesn't actually even inspect the premises. They they just impute it. They look at the area and they just decide what it should be. And and if you've got a, a competent um property manager who who has a, a, a valuer on staff, quite often you can, even if you only save 10, 15, 20%, I mean, that's 
it's money in your pocket effectively because you're reducing your your total occupancy costs and and you know and again the tenant if you, once you achieve it you can say the tenant well good news your council rates were going to be fifteen hundred dollars we got them down to twelve hundred dollars I mean you know makes you look good in front of your tenant yeah I mean why not anyway there are a few thoughts beautiful now i actually wanted to just touch back on the land tax you said you can't charge retail assets for land tax is that australia wide pretty much yeah now most people don't understand how a tenant is deemed to be retail you understand shops but if you've got a real estate agent or a solicitor or an accountant on the second floor in a building they are deemed to be a retail tenant if they're on the third floor they're not a retail tenant Wow. Okay. And it's a bit yep. confusing. And a retail tenant is deemed to be someone who deals directly with the public. So, you know, a, a dentist is a, is a retail tenant, even though they might be on a not on the ground floor. So, I mean, there are some buildings in the city where the whole building is full of medicos and dentists. Now, those up to the second floor are retail. Anything above that is not. Doesn't make sense, but that's how it is. So what it means is you can't recoup land tax from them. That's interesting. Yeah. What I was also going to ask about is the change of use. Before you're doing that, you definitely have to check the zoning to make sure the new use is going to be applicable, isn't it? Well, yeah, but let's say you had a, a suburb near the CBD in whatever city you're in it might be an older industrial building and the tenant's been there for years probably decades and finally they vacate now a lot of inner city properties have changed from an industrial zoning and it may be there's sort of industrial one two and three i mean they'll vary from state to state but if it's say industrial one it generally will allow offices now, sometimes the inner city want to encourage more people, so they actually rezone it to a mixed-use zoning. So that will not only allow offices, but allow residential, allow retail. So you've just got to look at what the zoning is relative to what the current use is. I mean, if you're going to change the use, you're probably going to need an architect involved, and they'd be the best ones to advise of what when I say you can get away with. I mean, you want to try and stretch the envelope as far as you can to get the highest and best use if you're going to change the use and upgrade it. Yeah, that's right. I know in New South Wales, mixed use is B4 zoning, but if you want to find out more about the property, you can go to the New South Wales planning portal. That's a really, really good website. You can just plug the address in there and that really is helpful. And then you can actually go to the, the local environmental plan and then you can search the actual zone that your property is in and then it gives you a list of all the uses for that property. Yeah, I mean, you have a couple of categories. You have as of right use, then there's a permitted use subject to doing such and such, which might relate to car parking or something else. Yeah, that's right. And I've seen in Newcastle an older industrial warehouse kind of building where they were getting, I think it was $150 a square metre for that property, and mm. they converted it to office, and the rate per square metre went up by $100. So, you know, yeah. significantly increase the value of that property. So it's actually a really, really good way to increase value. Now, Chris, last episode, we announced a lucky draw for the very last copy of the second edition of your book, How Commercial Property Really Works. And if you'd like to be in the running for this absolute wealth of knowledge, 
All you need to do is click in the show notes and purchase the nine-step formula, the keynote address for just $1, and make sure you use the coupon code 66OFF. And if you actually already have purchased that, you are instantly in the running for that prize. And what I was actually thinking about doing is I think I might get my two-year-old son to draw a name out of a hat. So we might make that footage available on Facebook, but I'll see what his bum says. <laughs> and I'm gonna I'm gonna announce the prize on the 26th of May, and I'm gonna announce the winner on the Commercial Property Show Facebook page. So that's pretty cool. I'm sure there's been a lot of entries already for that, Chris, hasn't there? They have. Yep, that's been Fan- pretty well subscribed to. Fantastic. All right, Chris, thanks for being on the show today. That's a pleasure. All right, guys, that brings us to the end of another packed show. We are really starting to get some awesome traction with this, and I have some really exciting things planned for the future that will help us all take our commercial investing to the next level. As always, thanks to the guests. They make the show possible. Thank you, Kevin McLeod, for the music. And remember, in the words of Grant Cardone... Be obsessed or be average. I'm Andrew Bean, signing off. This has been a Developer Life production.